Thank you for joining us for episode 398 of Live Happy Now. It's a brand new year and we're all thinking about creating new habits, so why not make yours a fun one? I'm your host, Paula Phelps, and this week I'm talking with Mike Rucker, an esteemed organizational psychologist whose new book, The Fun Habit, looks at how the pursuit of joy and wonder can change your life. He's here to talk about how we can learn to prioritize fun and how that can make us both happier and more productive. And as you'll learn, it can also improve the lives of those around us. Let's have a listen. Mike, thank you so much for coming on Live Happy Now. Thank you so much for having me. We've been talking about this for a while. We had to wait for your book to get out. We you have. know, we're just talking before <laughs> the show, there were so many delays because of COVID. So first of all, congratulations on release of The Fun Habit. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's been a long time coming. So I'm excited <laughs> to get has. it out there. <laughs> it has. I feel like we've been talking about it for a couple of years at least. Yeah, the pub date's gotten moved twice. Once it was like a soft one. And then this last one, you know, June to January was was a hard one, you know, like. <laughs> but six we're weeks here now. now. Yeah, and that's now, right. What a, what a great where way your to. feet are, right? <laughs> yeah, what a way to kick off the year. It's so interesting because you have such a distinguished background, including being a charter member of the International Positive Psychology Association. And so from the outside, we would expect that you'd have the whole happiness thing down. But as we <laughs> learn in your book, that was not the case. So can you kick us off by talking about how you learned to recognize the distinction between happiness and having fun? Yeah. So, and I'm still a believer in happiness, right? So I'm going to explain that. But, you know, the backstory is I was a charter member, you know, positive psych had been something prior to that organization coming together. You know, Cheek Sent Me High wrote Flow, you know, years before 2009 is when that kind of came together. It was really Marty Segelman that, that you know, kind of mm-hmm. created the movement, him and Ed Diener. I think Authentic Happiness had come out the year prior and there was this need for it, right? I, you know, the movement was doing something positive, you know, up until that point, clinical psychology was really just to treat deficits. And there are some amazing tools for folks that, you know, are living a life well to create things to, you know, make it better. And so those tools were certainly fairly useful to me during that time up until 2016. I still benefit from gratitude journaling. I still keep a mindfulness practice. And I you know, still value happiness. What had gone awry was I had become overly concerned with my own happiness. And so I'll explain that distinction. And that is really when something goes wrong. In my case, it was the death of my younger brother quite suddenly, and just having to process that, you know, all at once. Mm -hmm. And then these two aren't related, but a couple months later, after years of being an endurance athlete, not professional or anything, but really just enjoying that and a way to mitigate. I've always had low level anxiety and, you know, I haven't needed medication. I've used fitness to mitigate anxiety. I identified as a runner for sure. And I was told I had advanced osteoarthritis probably due to an injury, you know, it wasn't genetic, but I probably tore my labrum and, you know, just... (laughs) 220 pound guy doing a couple Ironmans, you know, like, <laughs> that'll start is, doing. Some yeah, work there. Yeah. yeah. But because it happened at such a young age, I was told I shouldn't run again. So lost my younger brother, found out that this identity I had as a runner was destroyed. And then this third thing happened. It wasn't really misfortune, but I just finished my doctoral work and graduated. And my wife 
who had supported me through those six years of academic work. We had two children during that process. So you can only imagine. Wow. That was calm. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Again, over-optimizing for a lot of stuff. She got an amazing opportunity and this amazing opportunity manifested and wanted to have her back, but I was still going through a lot of stuff and that essentially moved us away from our support network of family and friends. And so I wanted to figure out how to will myself to be happy. And the more I was doing that, paradoxically, I was becoming really unhappy. And, you know, because I am a researcher, I identified fairly quickly that something wrong was happening. I mean, I was getting close to probably low level clinical depression, but I understood that there was some sort of awareness that I was doing it to myself. And I don't know if I would call it a serendipitous, it was just more happenstance and good timing emerging research was coming out that you're probably familiar with. Professor I like a lot is Dr. Iris Mouse out of University of California, Berkeley, but her work has been replicated now that here in the Western world, folks like myself, how I found myself in 2016, that are kind of just always chasing happiness, have a pretty direct line to being pretty unhappy paradoxically. And so, wow. Okay. So here's sort of empirical evidence to suggest what's happening to me. But if that's the case, what can I do? Because I really want to get back to to being happy. And over time, it started to change my perception. Like, okay, you know, life can suck sometimes, but I have more control over sort of shifting my life to the good side, you know, rather than kind of wallowing in this act of rumination and introspection, which is essentially wasting energy waiting for happiness to come, right? When I can kind of move in that direction and not necessarily chase it, just live a joyful life, you know, without things that enrich me, like pro-social behavior, hobbies that really connect me to things that I like, you know, make me realize that's not just about myself. And again, just understand that I do have some autonomy over my time. As adults, even though we all want to have fun, we don't make it a priority. So what in your research did you find is keeping us from doing that? A lot of it's rooted in the Puritan work ethic that's, you know, still pervasive here in the West. You know, we're quite literally, we think our self-worth comes from how we can contribute, right? And what's unfortunate is there's been this kind of fast evolution from, you know, what Daniel Pink calls algorithmic work to heuristic work, whether you could call that the knowledge economy, whatever you want. And Unfortunately, in this new paradigm of work, we don't know where the goalposts are, right? And also because of advances in technology, we're always kind of connected to our workplace. And that yeah, our work days do not end. We're like we just fall asleep. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, from the moment we wake up till our head hits the pillow, there are a lot of people that are always on their phone. And if they get a notification, they feel like it's a prime to have to answer it. Because of that, even when we think we're in a state of leisure or a state of, you know, our domestic duties, like enjoying time with our wife or our kids, half the time, it's still an extension of work because if our phone buzzes, you know, we pick it up. And what we know is that subconsciously that essentially just becomes an extension of work. We've never created this transition ritual from work to leisure. And so the rub there is, is that the same way that we champion people that, lived in a state of sleep deprivation in the nineties, you know, like, Oh yeah. I remember that. (laughs) Yeah. And like, I fell victim to it. I never took down the post because I didn't want to be inauthentic, but if you search deep in my website, I think 
you know, I was like, oh, Gary Vee is amazing. And like, yeah, I'm, you know, I can do four hours of sleep a that's week. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> and so we now know that's asinine, right? Like the research is in. And if you're not getting sleep a year later, you're not even going to be able to work, right? right? Because that is a direct line to all sorts of physiological and psychological ills. We're now finding that that is true. This is emerging research. So I like kind of being on the forefront of it. Emerging research is suggesting that when we're not engaged in leisure, so whatever that means, if we're really being honest, there's two to five hours a day that we could potentially recapture depending where we are in life. And we're not doing that. What we're doing is essentially pacifying that time a lot of times. And if you don't believe me, just look at the health meter on your iPhone or your Android and see how much time you know, you're on social media apps or you know, some sort of mobile game. And ultimately, we know that those seem to be fun. But when we look back and ask ourselves, you know, how did you spend that time? Tell me what you saw on social media between the hours of four and six. Your phone says that you're on that. It will just be a shoulder shrug. And because that essentially displaced boredom or discomfort, or it wasn't something that really, you know, added to your betterment or, you know, attracted joy. How do you build in little pieces of fun? Because it's not like you have to take a vacation. It's not like you even need to take 30 minutes. You can do something in in five minutes that adds a little fun to your day. And that's going to really change your brain. Can you talk about how we work that in? You need to start by creating space. And I know we're going to get in the play model, so we'll discuss how to do that. But I think first you need to look at activities that aren't adding anything to your life, right? In the book, I call them the nothing, like, you know, this time that's just contributing because I think where positivity kind of got off the rails, you know, now we term it toxic positivity Mm -hmm. is that everything needs to be additive, right? And like, so, you know, kind of falling back on, my understanding of system design, it's just so hard for us to remove things, right? Because that's just, we're not, we inherently think that adding stuff on is always better. So we start by figuring out what are those, you know, moments that we can capture back. And so a simple one could essentially just be your lunch hour, right? Like, you know, a lot of us will just kind of hang out. And if we're working in a workspace, we'll just kind of hang out and let that hour pass, you know, so I like this mental frame of like, if you can't go on holiday, maybe you can take a whole hour, you know, kind of <laughs> playing into your point, right? That's great. So can you schedule time with a friend if you're more of an introvert, you know, because fun doesn't have to be a high razzle activity. Like I love Gina Sai in this area, right? Like it could just be enjoying a book, but recapturing something so that you can enjoy yourself in a pleasant way rather than just kind of you know, trying to get through the next hour. And so you're exactly right. Like, what are those opportunities, especially if you, you know, are time poor, where you can add in elements. Now, I will be careful, and I talk about this in the book, that task switching is definitely another way to become unhappy, right? We know that, you know, if you're kind of just always moving around from task to task, even Mm -hmm. if they're pleasurable, the cognitive load of that can just zap your energy. We don't want to over-optimize your life, but We do want to create the space so that you can exchange things that really aren't adding anything to your betterment and figure out how you can have more joy in those spaces. Yeah. And I think that could be a fun exercise in itself to kind of step back and say, what is it that brings me fun? What are things that I want to do? Because I think so many of us jump on this treadmill. And if someone says, what do you do for fun? It's deer in the headlights. They're like, I don't know. (laughs) I, I haven't had fun for a while. 
So I think too, there's that part that just that brainstorming of what brings me joy, what is fun for me. Yeah, exactly. You're spot on. And that's like another one of those interesting headwinds that I mentioned, like the resistance to that, because it does seem super silly, right? Like so many of us, you know, I know how to have fun. Like, yeah, you know, but you need, you need to remind yourself. Yeah, Yeah, that's right. And so being premeditated and just making a simple list, one, it's fun if you approach the activity with curiosity, right? Like not just staying like, "Ah, I can't believe I have to do this to have fun, but like, (laughs) Hey, let me remind myself of what lights me up. Right. And so that exercise of brainstorming can be fun in and of itself. And even if it's not fun, it's sort of a quick necessary step because you want to remember what are the things that really did bring you joy, you know, before you had all of this responsibility and some might not suit you anymore. So you can get creative with this list and make it expansive and then figure out what is it that you can incorporate and start, you know, figuring out with the space that you created what to do. One thing you mentioned in your book, and this can really help people out. It's like, what's your fun type? Yeah. And I thought that's great because you actually can go onto your website and there's an assessment quiz and it's very easy. It's not like you have to study for it. Um, (laughs) And and then you figure out like, okay, this is your fun type. So maybe these are the kinds of things that you should look for when you're creating your little fun list. Yeah, I think that one was, you know, I did ground it in science. It's I think everyone is all four fun types. You know, it just kind of points to where you seem to really enjoy yourself. Yeah, but to your point, you know, you could use kind of whimsical tools like that, or you could identify, you know, in, in the chapter on fun and friends, you know, who are your fun friends and see if you can create more opportunities with them. Because generally, if you've identified them as fun friends, they can be great mentors in getting you to have more fun, right? Like, absolutely. what are they doing? Because I do believe it becomes problematic if you're overly marketed things, or if you're mindlessly scrolling social media and just kind of going, oh, I wish I could do that. I wish I could do that because that's just incoming stimulus, right? It's not really an inward, like, oh, I really identify with that. Some people are mindful, like if you're into crafting and you only follow crafters, like there's always the exceptions to the rule, right? But a lot of us are sort of, you know, if we don't do it with our own interests at heart, we're sort of like, oh, they're having so much fun. Yeah. Well, they are, but is that what you would find fun? Like if you were really in their shoes, Yeah. you, you know, do you really want to be on a yacht? Because the last time I remember you would throw up every time you're on a boat, <laughs> right? And so. And that is a trap of social media because you're like, oh, that looks like so much fun. But then yes, when you break it down, it's like, do you want to do that? It's like, oh, heck no, no. Well, and it's curated, know. right? Like these are right. posed photos of people that are trying to gain your attention. It's called the attention economy for a reason. But ultimately, if you fall victim to that and you think that that's real life, it can become problematic. Because again, it goes back to what I fell victim to. Like, oh my gosh, happiness is here on Instagram. And I'm way back here in reality. And, you know, all of a sudden that gap between, you know, normal reality and this fictional reality becomes like, you start to identify like, well, I'm not where I want to be. And that can slowly become identifying as an unhappy person, right. which isn't necessarily true. It's the subjective reality you've created. And it's clear from the evidence that, you know, it's kind of reverse cognitive behavioral therapy. You now have these negative scripts, you know, that you're not even necessarily consciously aware of that are leading you to believe that you're unhappy when that's not necessarily true. That's why your play model is 
so fantastic. It's a great way to assess how we're spending our days. And can you talk about that? Explain what it is and how we can use it so we can incorporate more fun into our lives. It's essentially a sorting mechanism. So it helps you identify like things that really have gone off the rails, right? So play stands for pleasing, living, agonizing, and yielding. Pleasing activities are activities that are really easy to do, right? Like walking your dog, taking a nature walk, engaging in pro-social behavior with the friends that you enjoy. The living quadrant takes some energy, but ultimately leads to, you know, really engaging activities. So that can be mastering a new skill, that can be, you know, a vigorous hike, like if, you know, connecting to nature is your thing. That can be a spiritual practice, you know, because mindfulness becomes hard if you, you know, so et cetera, et cetera. But things that you wouldn't necessarily be able to do all the time because they do take some energy. Right. People are now classifying that as type two fun. I think that's a playful term for it. That's great. (laughs) Agonizing are the things that we have to do. So again, in the book, I make it clear that we can't engineer all of those out of our life. There are things you know, that we need to do as humans that are hard. Like our taxes. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that's a common one, right? But a lot of times when people look at like things that are really agonizing that happen week after week, there's generally ways to improve them. And so, you know, looking at those critically and thinking, you know, what is it? If you get creative, you know, things that kind of suck for you, you know, you could potentially change them either by changing the activity or, you know, outsourcing it if that if you're in a place that you could do that. The last one we've already kind of talked about, but it's the most nefarious, right? Is is the yielding. And that is things that don't bring us joy, but because they don't take much energy, we kind of do them mindlessly. And oftentimes, especially, you know, in this modern life we live, they're engineered to make us believe we're enjoying our time, but they really don't. So social media is an obvious culprit. Again, I don't villainize watching TV. There are shows that I certainly like that are fun to watch because I'm watching them either with my kids or, or, you know, or my partner. But what is a common routine for people is they're so burnt out from work. They plop down on the couch and just turn on whatever's there. And if I were to ask you the next week, like, hey, you know, I know you watch TV from Wednesday from seven to nine. What did you watch? And I, I don't know. Then you're frustrated after when you're done watching television, you look back and it's like, I wasted this time. I could have done something yet. We haven't identified what we would have done. So we just keep doing. That's why we need our fun. We need to like figure out what we do for fun because we yeah, would have done something differently. That's exactly right. And that identifies another headwind. And that is in those moments, it is hard for you to believe that you could go out and do something right. So what I've seen, and this has happened with multiple people that I've worked with, is that there's two things going on. One, for a lot of adults, for whatever reason, there's this notion that you can't do things on a school night. Like we've just been programmed to believe that we can't go out and have fun Monday through Thursday. And that's fundamentally not true, right? Right. And so, and then the second headwind is, you know, I'm just so tired. Like, let's say dancing, because surprisingly, um, but in a fun way, like dancing seems to be one of those really fun activities that a clear majority like, I would say like 60 or 70%, we just don't do anymore, right? And so, okay, try taking a dance class during that time, right? For the folks that really do want to reconnect with dancing. The first couple of weeks suck because you're still tired. You're still in that state like, oh, you know, plopping down on the couch would be more comfortable, not necessarily more fun, but it's, you know, more comfortable, by the third week, it's such an invigorating activity that they realize, okay, now they're looking forward to it. And two, they're a better person when they show up for work. 
And then three, oftentimes, once you get a taste for that, you know, like, wait a second, I am a better version of myself. I'm also more productive. Then, you, you know, it turns into this upward spiral and you start to figure out what are those boundaries? I was good at work. I'm going to stop now and go take time off the table for me. And now it's not just a dance class. You know, it's a comedy club with a friend and it's, you know, again, all the things start to fall into place. It's just that initial nudge. Like how can you break the inertia, you know, right. of this kind of habituated life that we lead? And and you bring up a really good point about our productivity at work. And, you know, a lot of times when we think of having fun, we don't think of it improving our productivity. And if anything, we think, well, it's going to cut into my time and I'm not going to be as productive. So how does it actually make us more productive? So the first is, I always explain this with a simple math equation because I think it really highlights it and it's easy for people to understand when we're living the best version of ourselves, and this is clear, you can go to Google Scholar and there's plenty of studies that back me up on this. When we're living with vitality and vigor, then we produce more, right? So think that if you're living a life where you're actually capitalizing on your leisure and feeling like you're fulfilled in all areas of your life, that you can produce two units of output per hour. So you're working a simple 40-hour work week, but you're, you know, for each one of those, whatever you're doing, creating widgets or making websites or, you know, <laughs> writing manuscripts, whatever it is, you're creating two units of that output. People that are working 60 hours a week, so they think they're working hard, but they're really just busy and aren't, you know, taking time to recharge their batteries are working a lot longer. And so that might feel good, but each one of those hours are only producing one unit of output. So the person in scenario A is producing 80 units of output and living a really fun life, you know, and, and just kind of happy with how everything is going. The person in scenario B is creating 60 units of output, thinks they're a hard worker, but isn't having fun at all and is on a fast track to burnout. And again, that's not just an assertion that's been backed out. So that's why I think, again, leisure and fun are going to, we're going to start to understand that making sure we protect that is as important as protecting sleep, you know, and again, no one now is telling you not to sleep, right? Like even right. the most staunch supporters of health culture, right? So oh, absolutely. The second is there, you know, amazing research coming out of social science. The person I really like in this area, her name's Caitlin Woolley, is that when you make activities more fun at work, one, you just do more. And two, obviously, you enjoy going to work a lot more. And so there's all sorts of creative ways to do that. And it can be as simple as, you know, if you really enjoy the people that you're with during that meeting that needs to take place, just taking it out outside of the office and doing it as a walk-in meeting, you know, to creating like gamified aspects of your work so that you enjoy it more. You know, it's really going to be specific to how you engage in work, but there's all sorts of really neat ways to make your work more fun. So figuring out what that means to you so you don't dread it, you know, that you're actually like, oh my gosh, can't wait to do this activity because yeah. I figured out a way. You know, another great method is exploring it as an anthropologist. Like, wait, I've done this work the same way for five years. It's so habituated and boring. That's probably why it's not fun. Could I do it in a totally you know, different way, whatever that means to you. And a lot of times just that curiosity of approaching your, you know, work in a, in a new fashion can be enough to make it fun. That's excellent. Mike, this book is 
so engaging. It gives us so many entry points to rediscovering fun in our lives. Um, We're going to tell our listeners where they can find it, where they can find some of the great quizzes so they can identify their fun type and learn more about themselves and having fun. So, But before we let you go, tell us why is it so important for us to get back to having fun and not put this off anymore? One, for our own well-being, right? There's a clear path to psychological and physiological benefits, especially as we start to age. Not only that, but we know from Bronnie Ware and others that when we index joyful memories throughout our life, we tend to really enjoy our later years because we have so much to look back on and we generally have better social nets too, right? Because we've made friends through this amazing thing. We also know through social contagion theory that we're more fun, we make everyone around us have more fun and live more joyful lives. So we're not just doing it for ourselves, but we're doing it for the ones we love. So even if we live this dutiful life where I want to be selfless, because you know that's not necessarily a poor trait, you could do it for the ones around you because when you're more joyful, you just spread that, right? And so as similar to kindness, having fun is going to affect all those around you. And once you really master it as a method, you can start to contribute to the greater good as well. It's not just about you, but it's really about the world at large and and making the world a better place. I love that. That is a great place to wrap this up. Thank you so much for coming on the show, explaining it to us and for writing such a wonderful, insightful and necessary book. Uh, Thank you for those kind words and thank you for having me. That was Mike Rucker talking about his new book, The Fun Habit how the pursuit of joy and wonder can change your life. If you'd like to learn more about Mike and his book or follow him on social media, visit us at livehappy.com and click on the podcast link. That is all we have time for today. We'll meet you back here again next week for an all new episode. And until then, this is Paula Phelps reminding you to make every day a happy one.